Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The last five years highlighted the racism, xenophobia, and Islamophobia which exists in American society. But it didn't start then. In his new book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American, my guest Wajahat Ali takes a clear-eyed and very funny look at this dark part of our American identity. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We are the most religiously diverse communities in America, 30% African-American, 25% South Asia, 20% Arab, and the rest miscellaneous. Until recently, acts of racism were usually undocumented in private. Well, now with social media and camera phones, one comment can instantly blow up online. So now the Republicans are kind of going back to the old historical playbook of trying to deprive the disenfranchised uh, some voters, especially black voters who they think will be voting Democratic. Hey, everyone. I'm Mujahat Ali, and I'm here to dismantle white supremacy. As Thanos said, aim for the head. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much for being on the show, and I want to jump right into your book. But before we do, I'd love it if you would tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. My name is Wajahat Lee. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, California, Fremontistan to be exact, to two Pakistani Muslim immigrant parents who thought it'd be awesome to name me Wajahat, so I'd blend. And they also thought it'd be awesome not to teach me English, even though I was born and raised in America, because who needs English? Old school immigrant parents who just dropped me off at Child's Hideaway Preschool with three phrases of English, which was shut up, because my mom used to say shut up, idiot, because my mother used to follow shut up with idiot. And you you know me. We grew up in the 80s. Remember the Campbell Soup commercial, uh-oh, spaghetti Of course. I used to say, uh-oh, Pazgetio. That's all I knew. And the awkward brown token Muslim kid who used to wear husky pants, who spoke no English, but ended up graduating with an English major from UC Berkeley, became a lawyer. And married the high school varsity cheerleader, married way up. So I love America. It's a great country. Wow, you did good. You open your book much like you open this interview. Humor is obviously a big part of your life. But in the beginning of your book, you start with this section of responding to some really vile messages that you've received. 
full of racism, Islamophobia, and just lots of terrible spelling. But instead of responding in kind, you write some very, very funny replies. Why did you, why do you choose to use humor instead of anger? So everyone processes the sad uh, reality of your country not wanting you or loving a country that doesn't love you back in different ways. And I think rage is fine. It's a righteous rage. And who gets to have rage in this country? But rage and anger in itself are privileged emotions. Uh, men, white men, get praised for being real and speaking from the hip and telling it like it is and being mad as hell and not taking it anymore. A woman does it, she's bossy. A black man does it, he's being uppity. That's why Barack Hussein Obama always had to be chill and calm and cool. Brown man does it, he's extreme. But just my personality is you can either laugh or you can cry. I'm not a crier. So I laugh. I think it allows me to enjoy the dark humor of it all. But I think humor, if used strategically, can also be used to dismantle your opponent and sometimes can be used to show the idiocy and the silliness and hypocrisy of hate and racism. And so you mentioned the opening of my book. I had a very strange, a different take on it. Instead of doing the usual opening, I begin this book listing, I think, about seven lovely, generous emails from my many fans that I'm sure that you get all the time. They give me unsolicited recommendations to go back to where I came from and go fuck a goat or a camel. And then instead I said, let me respond. And so I show you my responses, which are rooted, I think, in some dry humor, which hopefully booby trap and dismantle their idiocy and only enrage them further. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on the TikTok yet. I, I, I because... See, that's what the TikTok is great to have those moments where someone writes something horrible to you and you can pin it on the top of your video and actually respond. And those are the videos, oddly enough, get the most views. I think you'd be brilliant at the TikTok. See, I think like, you and I get lovely emails. I don't think people realize the type of barrage of hate that we get on a daily basis and the type of impact it has on people. Right? Everyone says, well, I'm tough until they get it. We're human beings. We're sensitive, emotional creatures. And people tell you each day, you suck, you're ugly, go back, you piece of shit, you're a Muslim, you're a terrorist. It wears people down. And so I'm in this, I think like you, for the long fight. And I don't want to be a martyr. I think oftentimes people in this environment they're in, we judge success through martyrdom. Look how many arrows I have. Look how I suffer for you. And look, I'm going to die at the age of 43. I want to reverse that. I'm like, I don't want you to suffer and die. I want you to have a long, healthy, joyful life. That to me is a response. That to me is a reaction. That to me is success. These guys want to bring us down. And the best revenge is success. And sometimes the best revenge and going off of your first question is, and maybe people will be old enough to get this reference, is to be like Bugs Bunny and not Daffy Duck. Oftentimes we're like Daffy Duck, right? Because we get angry and the anvil falls on our head. And we sweat. But Bugs Bunny, look, Elmer Fudd's after Bugs Bunny, Yosemite Sam's after Bugs Bunny, they're chasing him. But Bugs Bunny uses their trap against them, uses some humor, kisses them instead, and always at the end of the episode, he gets the carrot. What do you think it says about people in this country, people in America, that they just feel free to send messages like that? First of all, social media, the anonymity of social media has inspired all of our worst demons to emerge because it's much easier for me to say something like, I don't know you, but you're a celebrity. And now we know each other. We've known each other for a while, but you're a celebrity. So it's much easier. Like This is common. Oh, I hate Alyssa Milano. And then someone says, have you actually ever met her? Oh, no, I've never met her. Like People say this all the time against those people who are public figures. Do you really hate her? Have you ever met her? You cease being a human being. You become flattened. 
And what social media has done has flattened all of us. We're not complex humans. All we are are our last tweets or our last take or our last mistakes. So we become essentialized by that one trait. And that gives people the invisibility or hiding behind a screen or monitor gives people the type of empowerment to otherwise say things they would never say. I don't know about you, but I've met some of my trolls in real life. She has become Britain's most high-profile victim of cyberbullying. 14-year-old Hannah Smith, driven to take her own life after a vicious campaign of online hate messages. I've read these messages and it made me so, so angry, but I just felt... Who could put my little girl through that? As the family prepare for Hannah's funeral, her sister has been targeted by more abuse on the internet. 95% of the time, the mousiest, most quiet people on earth. I always say that, like, I've never, with all of the vitriol that I get online, I've never been in a situation in person where people are, like, yelling obscenities at me. And I think a lot of it is, it's not only the keyboard warriors, but also it's like because of social media, there's an ownership and an accessibility that never really happened before. When I used to get hate before social media, people had to go out of their way to write a hate fan mail, like, or a hate mail, figure out where to send it and stamp it. And there was a lot more processing that had to go on where people understood what they were doing or had time to reflect on, I'm sending hate, here I go, you know, licking the envelope. Now it is, so, we are so accessible that within three seconds of having a thought or emotion that is negative about a tweet, People can write hatred about how they feel about you. You don't even need both hands. You could just like, me have thought, me must tweet, thumb. And I do think what you're saying is that process of deliberation and taking time and reflection and sitting down, articulating your thoughts, you're putting the pen to paper, then putting that in an envelope. There is enough time there that you think, I'm over it. Maybe I'll go have a Coke. But the second you asked a question about like, why are people doing this? I think the second aspect to that is they have permission. Alyssa, when the president of the United States, the 45th president, Donald Trump, is openly saying, I think Islam hates us. The Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Go back to your country, the squad. And there's permission. My president is allowing me to air all of my quote unquote politically incorrect thoughts. I will not be penalized. I will not be punished. I will be celebrated. He told me to stand back and stand by. He didn't condemn white supremacy. It's go time. And the difference now, I'm sure you're getting this also back in the day, back in the day, they used to come out with like anonymous names, but now people just use their full names and emails with me. No shame. Yeah, none whatsoever. And I am really excited for you to get on the TikTok. <laughs> and I know it's, trust me, I know it's like another fucking thing that you have to open and another app that you have to spend time on. But I'm telling you right now, the dialogue that you have, first of all, people are genuinely nicer, but also the ones that aren't, that write a nasty comment, you get to pin on your, your backdrop, your green screen, and have a whole conversation where you're like, you know, like someone told me they did a, uh, a reply that said you should be in the next Alec Baldwin movie. Wow. Wow. So on TikTok, you're able to pin that to the top of the green screen. And I was able to record myself saying, there are people like this who exist that are saying they wish that I would do an Alec Baldwin movie. Who does, you know, and it gives you a little bit more control. 
you're allowed to fight back. And I think there's an element of shame there where if people realize what they think they're doing in private is aired, it makes them think twice, I hope, or the fact that they get checked. It's becoming also more violent. Like, so that person who said that to you, what they're saying is, you should have been shot with that prop gun. And, and with me, it's every day I get two or three emails, go back, shut the F up. Who do you think you are? And basically what I sense from these emails is the following. You should be grateful, Darkie, that we have allowed you to stay in this country. You Muslim terrorist, you brownie, the fact that we haven't kicked you out, just shut your mouth and be happy and stay quiet. And if you have the audacity to speak against white supremacy and Trump and are what I call the radicalized, weaponized death cult seeking to impose white minority rule, right, to go against multicultural democracy, we're going to put you in your place. And that type of intimidation we are seeing across the board. A Republican political hopeful from Pennsylvania who's a huge Trump supporter and uh, does not believe that Biden won the 2020 election has uh, now stated that he plans on using violence and intimidation against school board officials who implement mask mandates. We're seeing school boards literally appeal to Merrick Garland saying, please help us. Health officials, our elected officials, AOC being chased by Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ilhan Omar getting death threats. And the Republican Party saying, eh, we condone it. Yeah, the Republican Party gets fine. It's fine. It'll be okay. But have you seen the wokes? Let me tell you about the wokes instead. Exactly. Let me tell you about those elite liberals. So in your book, you write about labels that we apply to people based on their race or ethnicity. You write, recently, I've been informed that I've been inducted into something called BIPOC, which I love. I wonder what you feel the purpose of these labels really is and what the experience of being repeatedly recategorized into these different labels, what has that been like for you over the years? BIPOC is a new one that like a lot of progressives use, and I take the piss out of everything, but I'm like, okay, I guess we're BIPOC, which means Black, Indigenous, people of color. But to me, it sounds like this like Skynet version 2.0 from like the future that has come back to attack humanity. It sounds like the cybernetic creature or like a sleep apnea machine. But I'm like, okay, I'm apparently part of BIPOC. I'm the POC of BIPOC. But you know what people say, you hear this often. Why can't you just be American? Why do you have to hyphenate? And I'm like, because I, I living in a country in America where race has always been a social construct. White was constructed in the late 17th century, according to the documents, to give a label and category to those men and women who are wealthy landowners who had the white complexion and to separate themselves from those who are black and indigenous. Trust me, we would love to just be seen as American, to be seen as an equal, right? To be able to live out our lives with our diverse complexities. I don't want to melt into anything. I think America is like a tossed salad. Each of us has our unique form and we join together. So it's this labels that we choose for ourselves, which are very empowering, but then these labels and boxes that we're like lumped. And I have a section in the book where I talk about what box should I choose? It was like the age old dilemma in school, right? There was white, there was Asian, there was black, there was Pacific Islander, and there was other. So I'm like, I guess I'm other, the hot dog of the census. And then you get labeled by presidents. You are us or them. You are the axis of evil. You are the wokes. Once Me Too hit and people were coming out, then you became a survivor. It was like everything else about you get diminished when we are giving these labels. Because then what happens is, especially anyone 
who's a writer or in the public eye at all, then that's all anyone identifies you with in interviews, right? Like all of a sudden that becomes the banner in which you stand under. I have like a what came first, the chicken or the egg question for you that I'm curious to hear your perspective on. Obviously, racism, xenophobia, and Islamophobia have become, or at least seem to have become more visible in the last five years. But obviously, they've always been here. So from your opinion, do you think Donald Trump made it so that there are more of these people, or did he make them feel freer expressing their hate? Or was it that these people actually created Donald Trump and the rest of us are just starting to notice? That's a very good question. My take on that is Donald Trump is the inevitable realization of this long white supremacist project that has been ongoing in America and specifically post 50s, specifically after Brown versus Board of Education, the historic 1954 Supreme Court case, which said that segregation was unconstitutional. That was the start of the culture war. Then you see the 60s, right, in the civil rights movement, and you see the realization of the Southern strategy. And for those of the listeners who don't know, the Southern strategy was a very strategic endeavor by Republicans to win over disaffected Southern white Democrats who decided to defect from the party on race. And so they used bell whistles and dog whistles up to 1980, when Lee Atwater, a Republican strategist, who just one of the most vile strategists who helped uh, create this atrocious racist Willie Horton ad in the 1988 election, he said, well, you can no longer say the N-word. Back in the day, it used to be Edward. You can't say that anymore. So we got to keep it more obtuse. So now we say stuff like busing, welfare queens, right? So then it became urban crime, war on drugs. It became Obama, birther conspiracy, invasion, caravan, war on terror. And so what this was, was feeding racial anxiety, not economic anxiety, but the racial anxiety of many white voters with the conspiracy that these blacks and these browns and these feminists and these gays are replacing you, taking it over. What Donald Trump did is... He was the Frankenstein monster who finally escaped the lab and turned on his creators, meaning that McCain and Romney, even now, the quote unquote moderate Republicans, Alyssa, I don't think any moderates exist. They nurture it. They tolerate it. Even McCain did because they thought they could control it. But Trump was the unfettered id, the bulldozer who said, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And so he was the, the hot dog, if you will, of 20th century American racism and sensationalism that was created and nurtured in this environment. And not just that, he was protected not only from his whiteness and wealth, he was also given a mainstream platform thanks to celebrity. And so you combine all of those things together and the inevitable result is Donald Trump. And to answer your, the other part of your question, Donald Trump comes out, he wins. And listen, I take people literally and seriously. What did his voters say? It's our time now. We can be politically incorrect. When I went and visited Maine, Two, three weeks before the 2016 election, that was the darkest thing there. Trump rally. Giuliani was there. Trump was there. It was a diversity of whiteness. Every white you can imagine under the sun was there. When I talked to people about why they wanted to vote for Trump, no one mentioned economic anxiety. This is what it was. He takes on all of them. He takes on the liberals. He's politically incorrect. He's an equal opportunity hate monger. He was the organ and the megaphone for their hate and their anger, and their bile. And he gave them permission to be the worst versions of themselves. What possessed you to come here 12 and a half hours early for the Trump rally? 
Uh, my kids are going to remember this. Their kids are going to remember this. And I grew up with my family loving Trump. Modisette is like many Trump voters we met in dozens of interviews. Until Trump came along, politics meant next to nothing. You asked me a simple question, I gave you an answer, but I wanted to connect the dots. And I also think it's super interesting and something that I just learned as we were watching women's rights being rolled back, that the Republican Party wasn't really interested in a woman's right to choose up until they realized that the being racist wasn't working for them anymore and they needed to figure out what their new platform was going to be. And that was the shift, and it was obviously corresponded with the 70s and Roe v. Wade. But it really is shocking to me how they morph into whatever they think they need to be in that moment with no real foundation. And people will vote because we are so conditioned in this country to go into the ballot box and actually vote with either a D or R next to the name because that's how we've done it for so long. And we have made a really big deal out of labels. I wish we would rename these political parties into like people that believe in equality, the people that don't. Really just call them out on their shit and label them that because there is such a distinct difference in the political ideology And I don't think people understand because they're so conditioned to just either vote Republican or Democrat because of whatever they were taught or where they grew up. I was going to write an article about this, and I'm glad more and more people are finally doing it. I said, we have to name things for what they are. It's not a disagreement. It was a coup. It's not economic anxiety. It's a racial anxiety. It's not a racial trip up. It's racism. And the Republican Party is no longer a normal functioning Democratic Party. It is an anti-Democratic movement posing as a political party. We have to name these things as they are and educate our, our just Americans as to the reality of what we're witnessing right now in America. Because in the absence of that proper framing and that proper language, right, what you have is a manufactured asymmetrical delusion, which is like uh, masking the asymmetry. Because you have the Democratic Party, criticize them. I criticize them all the time. At least the Democratic Party is pro-democracy. Then you have the Republican Party, according to the latest studies, right, VDEM did this huge study. Uh, looking at all the conservative parties in the world. And they said that the Republican Party in the United States is now a far right party further to the right than the Vox Party in Spain or the National Rally Party in France. That's absurd. And now we have this party that believes in conspiracy theories where a majority of the voters believe in the big lie, where the deep state and QAnon, which is a national domestic terror threat, is echoed and parroted just this week again by Lauren Bobart. And so you're looking at an entire conservative movement and the Fox News, and the Republican Party that is aggressively assaulting our democracy. How can you create an equal platform and say both sides when this is the reality? Right now, I feel like we should be calling the Republican Party the party of conspiracy. And we could call the Democratic Party the party of science, because that's what it feels like. And I feel like we do 
a disservice to the American people by giving them these historically tangible and authentic labels when this is not the fucking Republican Party. And I've been a Democrat my entire life, but I've also been the type of person who has said, look, if Donald Trump, for instance, were to run as a Democrat or were to have run as a Democrat in 2016, I probably would have voted Republican. We wouldn't have voted for him. Uh -uh. And we can say that as Democrats. We can also say as Democrat. But this is I think this is part of the problem, too, because I think the Democratic Party is really good at articulating their policy. It gets really wonky. And the Republicans, they all get in line and they support each other based on hateful ideas that have zero policy to back it up. I always joke that the Democrats are nerds who bring a pencil to a knife fight and Republicans are bringing a bazooka. And the weakness of the Democratic Party is that they have, well, first of all, it's a strength, is that they have a multicultural coalition. So you have a much more diverse base and you have to cater to that base, right? Whereas Republican Party, more incestuous, small, white, you can ban down the hatches real quick and you can mobilize them. But what the Republicans do well, and we saw this where I am in Virginia, saw it over the summer, I tried to warn the Democrats that this would win. They didn't pay attention. Glenn Youngkin with a cardigan, friendly Trump, keeps Trump at bay, runs on one issue. He manufactures a boogeyman. This connects to everything that you've been saying so far. He does a Southern strategy again, but instead of saying N-word, 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 he says CRT, critical race theory, wokeness. Youngkin, again this morning, pledging a complete overhaul of Virginia's school system, including a day one ban on race theory, which is a mind-boggling priority because critical race theory isn't a thing. It isn't taught in schools in Virginia. First of all, the emotion they go for that works is fear. Hey, parents, do you know what's being taught in schools? They're teaching kids to hate white folks. And do you know your son might become transgender and ditch his genes for a dress? What? Fear. Okay, so what's the policy? There's no policy, but we're going to ban CRT. We don't know what it is, but we're going to ban it. Now we need to give it a professional message to win across independents and suburban voters. Parents' rights. Parents' choice. Do you give a message? You give a policy, which is no policy. It's basically just banning stuff they don't like. And then you connect it to an emotion. Boom. Beautiful recipe. I kept warning people this will work. Terry McAuliffe slept, walked through the election, thought it was his to take, didn't do the work. I'm here in Virginia. I'm telling you guys the real talk. Didn't develop a counter message. Youngkin got super lucky that Trump didn't show up. Had Trump showed up, I think it would have been opposite result. Two points would have gone for uh, McAuliffe. But lo and behold, it worked, Alyssa. It worked. And I know people who voted for Biden who voted for Youngkin based off of that alone. The disconnect is unbelievable. And it's interesting because when you say fear and you say phrases like parents' choice, they also have this ability to see that the vaccination is probably going to be mandated by the next school year. So being able to label something parents' choice, I feel, is just planting the seed for that fight. But that's what's going to happen. Well, it's already happening. It's already happening. My body, my rights. So with one face, they're saying, my body, my rights, my choice. I don't want to put a vaccine in my body. You can't put that vaccine in my kid's body. I don't want to wear a mask. At the same time, women, go F yourselves. We're killing Roe v. Wade. I want to go back to your book. You talk about your hometown of Fremont, California. Can you just give us a quick rundown of some of that history of that town and what it was like when you grew up there? So Fremont, California is one of these towns named after John Fremont, who was sent to explore and discover a country that was already discovered and inhabited by the indigenous folks of that time. But he engaged not in one, but multiple massacres 
of indigenous folks. None of his party were actually convicted, but instead they were rewarded. He eventually became an elected official, became a senator, unsuccessfully ran for president. And then Fremont, California, a suburban town in the Bay Area, right between San Jose and Berkeley, eventually was like the sleepy town, that, but then had the Silicon Valley boom. We moved there in 1980, before the boom, able to get a nice house. And now if you look at Fremont, California, the chef's kiss, it's one of the most ethnically diverse towns in the Bay Area. It's like mostly South Asians, Asian immigrants, some white folks, some Latinos and black folks. But it's one of those sleepy suburban towns that became type of a booming oasis in between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. It's like, it's like the classic moving on up, right? It's like Sam Malone gets to go to Fremont and who's the boss, you know, these upper middle class places where the immigrant families literally move on up to Vineyard Heights. They get a BMW or an Acura. They send their kids to a good school where they get a good degree. They graduate, they go get a good job. They marry a good woman or son. They get two good kids. And everyone smiles and everyone's happy, even though they're overwhelmed with stress and taking like Xanax because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Fremont, California. It seems like this is really the crux of your book in many ways, that the place the racists want you to go back to is an America that simply doesn't match their fairy tale version of the country. So why do you think those people believe the Fremonts of America today are just like the Fremonts of America in the 19th century. I think you're giving them way too much credit. When they look at me and they say, go back to where you came from, they think the Middle East. I'm, my family's from Pakistan, which is not in the Middle East, right? Iraq, Afghanistan, bigots aren't the most nuanced folks. They basically say, based on your skin tone, your last name, your multisyllabic last name, and your religion, you don't belong here. You're not, quote unquote, American. You're not from the Rust Belt. You're not from the heartland. You're not mainstream. You're not electable. All these euphemisms we always hear, Alyssa, which basically means not us. Average American, you know, when they when Yunkin won in Virginia, they interviewed a lot of average American suburban housewives who, who voted for him. All white, labeling, groups, perceptions, what's seen as real. And so I am not seen as a real authentic American based on my skin tone and religion. So when they say go back, they're not saying, I joke. I said, oh, you want me to go back to Fremont, California? I would love to if you could, uh, you know, subsidize my rent. And they go, shut up, go fuck a goat. I'm like, why a goat? Why only limit me to goat or camels? Honestly, if, let's take a moment. Why only goats or camels? They're, why are they obsessed with goats and camels? But basically what they're saying is you don't belong. Once a place where children played, where adults worshipped and families gathered, the Victoria Islamic Center is now a charred shell where echoes of song are but memories. Our dream, our home was burned at the front of our eyes. Imam Osama Hassan discovered the mosque in flames early Sunday morning, even as people around the country gathered in airports to protest President Trump's ban on travelers from seven predominantly Muslim countries. As those pro-Muslim voices rose, so too did the flames in Victoria. And you mentioned something really, I think, powerful about this idyllic, romanticized vision of the past. That's what appeals to Trump voters. Make America great again. Make me feel great again when I was on top. This nostalgic Leave it to Bieber 1950s black and white sitcom before 1954 where blacks and browns knew their places and we went to the diner and listened to rock and roll and there were pretty girls. Women were women and men were men and there was only two pronouns. That's when America was great. Simple times. 
That's what I want to go back to, which never existed then and won't exist now. Less than a year after 9-11, your parents were both arrested, caught up in a sweep that had nothing to do with terrorism. An FBI team refused initially to tell anyone what the arrest was for and had helicopters circling your house. I mean, what the fuck? Tell us about that experience and how it changed both the way people saw you and the way you saw America. Yeah, I haven't really shared the full extent of the story. And I wrote about it in the book where it was April 2002. I was 21. It was a couple of months after 9-11. I was about to graduate and I was applying to law school. And I get this call from my aunt. I'm at UC Berkeley and my aunt says, you should really come home. Your parents have been arrested. I'm like, excuse me, I'm the only child. I go home. I have two grandmothers who I was taking care of at the time. And all these FBI agents came and Robert Mueller came and there was a press conference. At that time, there was apparently something called Operation Cyberstorm which was like a team up between Microsoft and the FBI. And they got two dozen people in at that time was the largest, you know, anti-piracy ring. Now, the problem was my parents had no anti-piracy charges. They didn't do any of this stuff. My parents got swept up at like 6 a.m. Police came, FBI came, video cameras there, guns in hand. They dragged them out of bed. Middle-aged, suburban, South Asian immigrant parents trying to figure out what was going on. My grandmother was there in her broken English saying, what's happening, crying. And then my father then read the indictment and he almost passed out because he's like, what the hell? What's happening? And apparently they did this uh, business with Microsoft a couple of years previously, a software business. And so Microsoft basically laid out a giant net and got people who were part of this piracy ring, but then also got my parents who are these suburban business owners who did an educational software with them like a couple of years back. And they said, no, you did fraud. And you milked us out of potential $100 million worth of money. And we have 30 counts of fraud and money laundering and this and that. And my parents are like, what the hell? And what happened instead is people, you know this, you're in the media, people only read the headline. People don't read the fine details. So what happened instead was Bay Area parents, part of massive anti-piracy ring, owe $100 million. So everyone thought expected damages or a claim of damages is different from actually seeing $100 million. So everyone, my parents' names was, was on the front page of the FBI website. All right. That's how crazy it was. So I come home with this model minority myth was shattered overnight. And overnight, especially after 9-11, we, I had two distinct, if you will, traumatic episodes or disruptions. 9-11, where overnight, those Muslims who thought they were white and comfortable, country reminded them overnight. You don't belong. You're now the axis of evil. Asian Americans have gone through this. Japanese Americans have gone through this. Mexicans have gone through this. The rest of us are going through this right now post-Trump. And then this happened where overnight, your good credit, going to UC Berkeley, living in the suburbs, didn't matter. Now, I am the other American, the bad American, the people with bad credit, the people who have a foreclosed home, the people who are part of the criminal justice system. And it goes back to the point you were making earlier about when you flatten someone, when a headline flattens someone. My parents ceased being my parents who made Pakistani food and watched Pulp Fiction and read The New Yorker. Now they became criminal masterminds. These goddamn Pakistanis who came to this country and defrauded Microsoft. And you can imagine community politics, the community turns on you, bad news travels fast. And we were like herpes. We were like kryptonite. No one would touch us. And then you add on to this fact, the post 9-11 climate, for American Muslims, 9-11 brought the same loss felt by every American, but it also triggered an onslaught of anti-Muslim sentiment 
that has only risen in the decades since. In 2002, just 25% of Americans believed Islam was more likely than other religions to encourage violence. Now, that number is at 50%, according to Pew Research. Where I remember in a pretrial hearing, the attorneys said, we found, I'll never forget this, we found books in their home and they had Arabic and Urdu. And the Taliban is in Pakistan and the judge then cut him off. He said, that's enough. And those books that they found were simply prayers in Arabic and Urdu. But it just shows you how the veneer and perception of the Muslim threat colored the narrative. Your parents spent significant time in prison. And I'm just so taken by, you know, the fact that nearly nobody from the financial crisis a few years later which was engineered by much shadier business deals and affected hundreds of millions of people, none of those people saw any jail time. So that must have been a really surreal experience for you and your family. So I had to leave college. I had just turned 21. I had to take over the family business. I had mom in jail. I had dad in jail. So I used to get the collect call phone from my mom. Then I had to get the collect call from my dad. Then I had to get money for the lawyer. And I had to talk to the lawyer. It was a lot. And then it was a lot. I had to take care of my grandmother. So it was like, I felt like, I described it in the book this way. I felt like I was Spider-Man being attacked by the Sinister Six. And I was just waiting for the Avengers to show up and the Avengers never did. And instead, like the waves brought in more and more hordes of enemies each and every single day, just pounding away at me. And anyone who's been through this before, any of your listeners, I'm sure they've been through this. It's fight or flight. You just have to steal yourself. I'm the only son. I got to help my family. And a year later, because we were finally able to convince people to put up property for their bond, my parents got out. And then once my parents got out, when you're in a fight flight situation, when you say, oh, I can relax for a second, your body just gives up. And I had all these strange health complications. And what people don't know is that this case went on for eight years because my parents and I was very fair. I told my parents where they went wrong, what I would have done in the book. I think I'm very fair. But my parents said, look, we want to appeal this case. In hindsight, they probably should have settled. They're freaking two Pakistani immigrant parents fighting against the U.S. government and Microsoft. But they said, why should we sign our name to something we don't think we did? So that case went on for eight years. So throughout my entire 20s, there was a sword hanging over our necks because I was in a state of paralysis where I'm like, if they lose this case, I can't go to L.A. to become a writer. I can't go to New York to fulfill my dreams. I have to leave everything, go back, clean up the shit take care of my grandparents because I'm the good son. I'm the only son. And so we thought they would win. There was the appeal. And then one day, I'll never forget it. I was in bed. I get a call from their attorney. Sorry, Waj, we tried our best, but they lost the appeal. That day, my dad gets arrested. And my mother is given six months by the judge to take care of everything. We sell everything. I'm like a 30-year-old. I'm a writer. People know me now. People think I'm killing it. People think I'm crushing it. I'm the guy who made it. I wrote the play. I'm on TV. I'm broke as broke. My parents are in jail and the house gets foreclosed and we move into my chacha's home where I'm sharing the bed in one room with my mother as a 31 year old. And then I drive my mother to prison. It's a lot. You mentioned the play. Tell us a bit about the domestic crusaders. Yeah. So while this was happening, you're a creator. It sounds hyperbolic and melodramatic, but there's something powerful about creation. Like you, you, you hear writers say, I created something, right? You gave birth to something. And so when my parents came out, I was 23. 
I was devastated. My health was devastated, broke, didn't know what was happening. I had to finish my thesis, yada, yada. I had nothing left. So I said, you know, the one thing I might have is this play that I started writing as a senior after 9-11 because my short story writer, uh, teacher Ishmael Reed, who's a MacArthur Genius recipient, famed author, as a black man, he said, listen, I'm going to take you out of this short story writing class. I think you're very talented. I want you to write a play instead. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, listen, I'm a black man. Let me tell you, I'm looking at the media and your people are going to get hazed for the next 10 years. As black folks, we fought back in this country through art and culture and storytelling. And he says, I've never read a traditional American drama, but from the point of view of what are you again? I'm like, fat, scared, what? He goes, no, like ethnicity. I'm like, Pakistani, yeah, like from a Pakistani Muslim family. So he goes, you ever read Death of a Salesman or Fences or A Long Day's Journey in the Night? I'm like, yeah. He goes, write me something like that. Write me 20 pages. In fact, give me 20 pages in two months. I'm going to kick you out of the class. Don't waste your time in this class. And if you don't give me 20 pages, you'll fail the class. Okay, bye. I'm like, what? So that became the genesis of this play of the Domestic Crusaders that I started writing. Then my parents get arrested. He keeps bothering me. This is also the benefit of having a good mentor, the benefit of having someone who believes in you. He kept in touch with me and said, just give me five more pages. And so once my parents came out after that, like kind of two years since I began the play, I finished the play as a reward to myself to create something where there was just ruin everywhere. And I rewarded myself with the completion of the play for my 23rd birthday. And then DIY from 2004 onward, we did this play, The Domestic Crusaders. And at that time, Melissa, yeah, you know the Pakistani American father? I said, Salman. He goes, yeah. Who, who you thought about casting him? He goes, I have some ideas. I'm like, what's your idea? What about Ted Danson? And I'm like, Ted Danson? And I started laughing. And he goes, what's funny? And I'm like, I love Ted Danson. I love Beckett. Uh, I love Cheers. He goes, yeah, people like Ted Danson. He's safe. So those are the notes that I got. So that's why we did everything ourselves. This was pre when diversity was a cool thing. And I'm proud to say that at the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on September 2021, McSweeney's republished the play with a new cover, with a new intro from Hasan Minhaj. The play is being taught and the play has been before, performed around the world. And those other mainstream plays at that time are forgotten. And a silence permeates the air. What did I miss? Bursting onto the London theatre scene is Wajahat Ali's new play, The Domestic Crusaders. Set in America, it focuses on a day in the life of a modern Muslim Pakistani-American family. The play debuted in New York last year and received widespread accolades and reviews. At the time, Wajahat told us it's a universal story of a family that's told through a culturally specific lens. So... There's that. That's incredible. I want to touch base and I could talk to you forever, but... I talk too much. You're asking me these big questions. I'm giving you stories. <laughs> no, you don't talk too much. It's perfect. I love when guests come here to talk. There is nothing worse than doing a podcast when guests are not engaged and connected. But I want to ask you about... I feel like we're living in a country undergoing a really slow rolling coup orchestrated by many of the people who enacted and proposed up some of the worst of the Trump era policies. So what do you think about it? What does the future look like for an ethnically diverse America if they succeed? So I don't think it's a slow moving coup. I think it's an active present coup. This is what's happening right now. As we saw last month in December, where Mark Meadows with his treasure trove of text and information, it was revealed that there are individuals who are, have yet been named elected officials 
who were apologetic for not helping the coup. They were texting him, right? There was a, not just a six-point memo, a PowerPoint. It was literally a PowerPoint on how to do a coup. But, but they're doing it right now too, Alyssa, right? That's the thing is the fraudits, they're still doing it. The big lie, the propaganda, replacing even those loyal Republicans for not being loyal enough, replacing them with people who are openly saying that I'm going to reject the electors. They're literally telling you, it's like a bad Bond villain telling you in the first 10 minutes of the movie before like the golden naked girls dance in the music section. He's literally telling you the plot. They're telling you the plot. Like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do in 2022. And so the fear is real. This is DEFCON 2. We have an armed, weaponized, radicalized minority that will not accept a legitimate election that is putting in loyalists who are willing to reject electors, who's willing to cheat and do propaganda. And then what's going to happen in 2022 and 2024 if Democrats win? A large minority in this country says, nah. Or if they legitimately win, they're going to say, nah, we're going to reject your electors and put on ours instead. And you have now a constitutional crisis. And I'm not an alarmist, but if I see the comet coming from the sky, it is my duty to warn all of you, there is a comet coming. Not to say, oh, there's a nice light show in the sky. This is a comet. So what gives me hope, if anything, is enough people figure this shit out. The right wing gets more nuttier and more extreme, revealing their plot. The Justice Department, for the love of God, follows the evidence and flexes and has accountability. And somehow, 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 you can bribe, cajole, influence, Manchinema, Manchin and Kristen Cinema, to do the right thing, amend the filibuster, pass Voting Rights Act. Because absent that, Alyssa, even if we show up in numbers, it's hard to outvote voter suppression. I know it's really something. I produced a documentary on Charles Booker's race in Kentucky against Amy McGrath for the Democratic ticket to run against McConnell. And one of the stats that came out of Kentucky from that primary was that there were 3,700 polling locations that were reduced to a 193. That's thousands less. There is one polling location for a city with 853,000 people, like almost a million people had one polling location. Anyway, it's called From the Hood to the Holler, and it's really great. And then you also see redistricting, right? They're taking the new maps and surgically creating maps to essentially disenfranchise black voters. That's what's happening in Ohio. What's happening in Wisconsin? Like, literally, it's laughable to the point where even if the majority comes out, it's a rig. They can't win. You get like 60% Democratic voters, 40% like Republican voters. And the way they've drawn this map through gerrymandering, eh, SOL. These are very real threats. And I think many of us from 2015, when we were sounding the alarm, especially people of color, we were told they were being hysterical. The systems will be in place. There will be guardrails. There will be moderate, sober Republicans. And I'm like, no. What makes you think the guardrails will stay in place? What makes you think these people won't radicalize? It absolutely is out of the authoritarian playbook. And I'm really worried about what's happening to election administration in the United States. When you think about what 
normally exists in election administration in America. It's normal, decent people who are often volunteering for posts that come with authority, but no real power. They're not trying to influence elections. That's changing. And that's going to change the people who are going to go for those positions. One of the things I, I write about in my book is that magnetic power is magnetic to corruptible people. Listen, I feel like as advocates and activists, we see the writing on the wall far out from when things actually come into play. And the reason why so many of us showed up at the Kavanaugh hearing was because we were like, hello, sounding the alarm. And it doesn't matter if it's about democracy or rights or civil rights or women's rights, whatever it is. And yet we're still surprised. When it's no, you remember the constitutional crisis we were talking about four years ago? Like, that's happening right now, you guys. Hello? Like, we sounded that alarm four years ago, and you're like just now going, oh, you know what? Maybe they're, I don't know. So, yeah, like, it is something. And it is so frustrating to watch the Democratic Party just let things roll out of control without speaking up. And that's a fair criticism of the Democratic Party, because you say if the Republicans were in charge right now, how would they flex their power? And we know how they flex their power. Yes, it'd be aggressive and in bad faith. But they do hearings after hearings, nonstop messaging, whine and complain. I want Democrats to do that because Democrats actually have standing. They actually have the evidence. They actually have the narrative. They actually have the power. We put you in power for a reason. But now you say, oh, we passed infrastructure. No one gives a shit about infrastructure. I'm glad they passed infrastructure. But infrastructure is not going to get people out to vote. You need Voting Rights Act. You need accountability. You need messaging. We need messaging because if you tell people what's in the bill, they go, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm totally for all that. But we I don't know. I feel like we need a bus tour. (laughs) Who did 81 million people vote for? Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Where is Kamala Harris? And they're so afraid of these attacks against Kamala Harris. This is the difference between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans have the fascist five, the traitor tots, the Goldilocks, the freaks, Lauren Bobart, Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates. You know what they say? They're part of the family. We're going to defend them. We're going to own them. We're going to condone them. Democrats get hit. They throw everyone under the bus. They're like, let me throw Ilhan Omar under the bus. Let me throw AOC under the bus. Let me hide Kamala Harris. We don't come up with a counter message. We don't punch back. We get so terrified because some people might not like hearing this. There is a faction of the Democratic Party, some people call it the establishment, the power of the money, that still centers whiteness and that mythical white voter in the Rust Belt who somehow might turn for them over their base that always comes out for them. Which is why when we have these candidates, like the candidate in Virginia, we have, or even if you look at Kentucky, when the establishment gets behind someone like Amy McGrath, that's when we don't win. When you can't differentiate between a Democrat and a Republican, because the Democrat they're putting up is so down the middle, they're afraid to stand for anything, then people are going to be like, you know what, I'm just going to vote for the guy that I recognize as nay or the, the R next to the nay, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So you mentioned hope before, and I like to end all of my interviews with the question of, because it could get really depressing for my listeners to listen to these interviews because we're talking about the demise of democracy. Let's end on a positive note. And what gives you hope? So the last chapter of the book is called Invest in Hope, but Tire Camel First. And specifically, there's a saying in Islam that have faith in God, but tire camel first, which means do everything within your power and exhaust all your energies to change your situation with your hand. And after that, let it go and put your faith in a higher power. 
And I feel like the Avengers aren't coming. You can't outsource the solutions to anyone. We have to be the heroes. We have to step up. You have to model in your daily behavior the type of country you want this country to become and can still be. And so I feel like what gives me hope is the fact that, number one, I'm grateful to be alive. 800,000 people have died in this pandemic. We are still alive. Be grateful. We can still breathe. Number two, it's never over. I refuse to invest in cynicism and apathy because it's cheap and lazy. It means being a spectator in life and throwing booze from the cheap seats. Investing in hope, you open yourself to being betrayed. You open yourself to disappointment. But at least it means you're putting yourself out in the ring. And I have three kids. And the inheritance I'm going to give them is not, oh, you're going to be a righteous victim. You'll suffer well. For my kids and the next generation, I have to work. And at the very least, I have to plant a seed. And so I see people coming out, the George Floyd protests. Back in the day, it just used to be black and brown folks, but I saw white folks there. And I see people with the Women's March. And I see people coming out celebrating in the streets when Biden and Harris won. And I see people organizing and mobilizing. And I see people trying their best to overcome their privileges and biases. And so what gives me hope is the fact that there is a multicultural coalition growing. And this is the Empire Strikes Back moment, right? This is act two. Empire Strikes Back. I knew it would strike back. It struck back after Biden, Harris, and the George Floyd protest. But like now it's time for Return of the Jedi. And so I feel like if you tap out, it's all gone. The Republican Party and the conservative movement is an absolutist, radicalized movement playing for all the marbles, ladies and gentlemen. They're playing for all the marbles. They're trying to take this country back to 1954. But I feel like there is enough of us, the majority, if we get our act together and we work, we will win, but we need to work. And I am inspired every day. Last thing I'll say, you said hope. I'm inspired by my daughter because two years ago, two and a half years ago, there was hopelessness. My daughter was diagnosed with stage four cancer. She was two, about to turn three. She needed a full liver transplant. She went through every inconceivable setback. We didn't think she'd survive. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, 500 people decided to sign up to be an anonymous liver donor for her. Most of the people I never met, some people messaged me and said, I hate your politics, but I want to save your little girl. One random guy I'd never met was an anonymous donor. After the surgery, he made himself known, Sean Zahir. The liver grew back. She's healthy. She's alive. She's cancer-free. And so I see that moment of darkness where I imagined burying my own daughter. I had to imagine it. I had to imagine that possibility. It had to be strong enough. But now I see her. She's wearing her dress. She's right here. I'm building a frozen Lego castle for her. She's five years old. The test came back negative. And so for her, and inspired by her journey, you have to fight. I will fight until the end because you never know that the next page might bring a new chapter, a new story, and there might be a plot twist where, inshallah, things get better. So I'm hoping for that, inshallah. Inshallah. I'm hoping too. Well, Wajahat, Ali, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. If you look at American history and you look at Thomas Jefferson, 11 years before he wrote the Declaration of Independence, he actually ordered his first Quran, which came to him from England. And he actually read it, uh, unlike some other elected leaders. He didn't need big pictures. What, too soon? My bad. Uh, and, he, and he read it, and 11 years later, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, very much using religious liberty as a protective shield for the Mohammedans. We were called Mohammedans back in the day. Uh, Muslims, Mohammedans, Hakuna Matata. Uh, <laughs> pagans, Jews, and Christians, right? So that was the intention and the framework. 
Religious liberties, freedoms for all, protection makes America great again. And he was even uh, accused of being a secret Muslim in the election of 1800. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't Obama who was the first president to be. And Obama is a Muslim, by the way. Thank you for voting for him. <laughs> uh, secrets out. Uh, but look, you said about Catholics, we see parallels, right? Certain parallels exist. American Freedom and Catholic Power was a best-selling book in 1949. Uh, that book, if you literally read everything he said about Catholics, you just replace Catholic with Muslim. It is almost the exact same talking points from the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. In 1959, when that book was re-released, when this young man by the name of JFK was ascending, it became a best-selling book again, warning about the rise of the Catholic threat. What's the difference, I would say, is the following, and I think this is, this is what's causing a lot of the panic on the right, is Muslims, unlike Catholics and Jews, will never be absorbed into whiteness. The most telling thing about the hateful in our nation is their desperate need for anonymity. The Klan wore their hoods. The trolls hide behind anonymous accounts with stupid and ironic names like Truth Seeker 45 and Common Sense 69. There's no difference. They are all cowards. The hate-based view is the product of cowardice, and our nation is full of these cowards. Waj writes about the hope for America, that it has not had its catharsis yet, that we have not written the last act. And I'll tell you this, if we let these cowards write the last act, it will be a tragedy. If we win, if we crush these weak and hateful people and their weak and hateful ideas, we may yet have something better. The thing is, it's up to us. Complacency is the sewer that these cowards use to sneak in and poison us. We have to be vigilant. We have to confront these ideas wherever they appear, in school board races, in our town Facebook groups, in the Republican Party, and yes, even in some of our Democratic Party. It's there, festering. We need to send it back to where it came from. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.